You are listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. program is brought to you by the makers of Popsicle, Budgicle, and Creamsicle, those delicious frozen confections on a stick. Now I have a swell surprise for you. The famous winner of the typical American boy contest has now become Popsicle Pete. And here's a message from him. Hello, everybody. I sure am glad to meet you. And boy, am I glad I was picked to be the typical American boy, because now I'm Popsicle Pete. I always wanted to be on the radio, now I have a chance to tell you about some wonderful presents you can get free. See, you ought to see them, hundreds of them. You get them just for saving bags from Misty Popsicle, Pudgicle, and Creamsicle. Some gifts, even better than Christmas. You can get a wristwatch, a movie camera, table tennis, a wallet, a doll. See, lots of gifts. Just save the bags from Pop- Popsicle, Creamsicle, and Pudgicle on a handy stick. Boy, do they taste good. 
wholesome, too, and nourishing. Made fresh every day of the finest ingredients. The biggest five cents worth anywhere. And say, kids, get the free illustrated popsicle gift list at your ice cream store. A free coupon comes with it, worth ten bags. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Starring William Conrad. The story of violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Howdy, Marshal. Hello, Mr. Biggs. Can I give you a hand? No, no. This is the last match. Hey, wait till the flies get to these buffalo hides in the morning and be enough vultures overhead to keep the place in the shade for a week. <laughs> yeah. You know, you'll sure have your hands full by tomorrow night. Yeah, it looks that way. When these boys turn them hides into cash, they'll bite the corks out of every bottle in town. <laughs> and some of them look mean enough sober. Yeah. Well, you better bed down and get some sleep, Mr. Biggs. Uh, where are your boys? Here. I don't know. Jeff had some trouble with the dry axle up near Pawnee Rock, and Boaz stopped to help him fix it, but they shouldn't be this long behind me. Well, if I see him, I'll tell him where to find you. Sure, you, you can tell Jeff, but Boaz ain't even going to hear you. Oh, why? What's the matter with him? Oh, he's riding higher than an eagle. You know that white buffalo you've been hearing about? The albino? Mm-hmm. Well, it's just Indian talk. Oh, you think so, huh? Well, if it is, Boaz sure shot himself a mighty scared buffalo. <laughs> White as borax. Huh. That ought to fetch a price. Hey! Anybody seen Marshall Dillon? Oh, right over, there. over here, Chester. You better saddle up, Mr. Dillon. What's the matter, Chester? The Indian trouble. Two men dead and a couple of wagons burned up out there. I found this. A war rattle. Made out of buffalo toes. Arapaho. Well, they haven't been making any trouble. Well, these did. I, I was topping a hill when I saw the wagons go up in fire. It was Indians, all right. I saw one ride off. That's funny. I never heard of Arapahoes attacking at night. How far out, Chester? Ten mile, maybe. Toward Pawnee Rock. Pawnee Rock? Marshal, my sons are coming from there. Easy, mister. There's lots of wagons in the church. <laughs> Marshal, I didn't see another wagon between here and Pawnee except the ones we had, but... The Indians killed my boys. There's only one way to make sure, Mr. Biggs. Saddle up and ride over to my office. I'll be with you as soon as I can get my horse. I cut back through those button willows over there when I spotted the wagons being fired. We must be close to it, then. Just over there. Right down yonder. See him? Yeah. I see him. 
rode up and dismounted. The last glint of hope in Mr. Big's eyes died. His boys were there, all right. And it wasn't nice to see. Kill him. I'll get him, please. I'll murder every red skin in the territory. We got to bring your sons in, Mr. Biggs. You know what the morning's going to be like. You don't want to leave them out here. Now, come on. Hey, look. Down there by the stream. Yeah, four of them. And they're not saddle horses. Mr. Biggs. Mr. Biggs. You recognize yeah. those horses down there? I... Yeah. I know. Teams belong to Boaz and Jeff. Indians must cut them loose from the wagons before they fired. Doesn't that seem curious to you, Chester? In what way, Mr. Dillon? Why didn't they take the horses with them? Yeah. What are you thinking, Marshal? No burned hides in those wagons. So they stole them. Yeah, they stole them. But Boaz and Jeff both have their rifles there beside them, and the horses are left behind, too. Horses and guns are the first things Indians would go for. What are you looking for, Mr. Dillon? Those buffalo hides weren't carried off without wagons. Yeah, here. Marks the two other wagons here, and they're fresh. I didn't see any other wagons, only these. Well, they'd finish and gone before you got here, Chester. Well, yeah, but I, I'd have caught up to any wagons on the trail to Dodge. Did you go by regular trail? Well, no, I... I figured the Indian I saw wasn't alone. I didn't want to get bushwhacked further on. You didn't see any Indian, Chester. But Mr. Dillon, just as plain No as... Indian would leave guns and horses. This job was done by white men. It didn't take anything that could be recognized or identified. You mean somebody's in Dodge by now with the hides my boys worked and sweated to get? I'm afraid so, Mr. Biggs. Uh, there'll be more than 300 buffalo hunters there by morning. <laughs> Could be any of them. We'll find our right ones. Oh, how? The albino. Whoever killed your sons will have that white buffalo hide. <laughs> It was almost sunup when we got back to town, and more wagons had jammed the main street lining up for the unloading barns. I rode down the line, looking them over one by one. Howdy, Marshal. Some of the men would take their money, drink it up, and drift away. Few would stay long enough to be buried on Boot Hill. Then suddenly a wagon driver up ahead pulled out a line. Oh, hey, hey, wait a minute, Jim. Hold it there. Take your hands off that key. I'll take my hands off since you get back to your place. Oh, I'm tired of waiting now. Let go of that bit, mister. Don't do that, stranger. Get your hand away from that gun. Well, now, knows any law around you. There is, so don't try making your own. You got no right grabbing my team. I got plenty right when it's right. Going in front of me, Marshal. That's a lie, Marshal. He cut Never mind. Blood. You both want to cool your heads out in jail? Now, what's your name? Tennessee is good enough. A lot of people from Tennessee coming into the territory. Most of them are pretty peaceful. That sounds like you're saying I'm not. You moved pretty fast for that gun. 
man can lose his temper. You lost yours four times, according to the notches you've carved into that gun butt. But don't try for number five, not here. How about you? What do you call? Charlie Kell. Charlie Kell, huh? They ever call you Chuck? No. Heard of a Chuck Kell a couple of years back come from Kentucky. Not me. Man I heard about was a gunfighter. So he never wore gloves. See, you don't either. It's pretty rough on the hands. Thanks, Marshal. I'll make sure to take better care of him. Yeah, do that. I'll be around a while, Marshal. Maybe we can have another talk. Anytime. They'd need watching. But what I wanted now was a white buffalo hide. Searching the wagons wouldn't do. There wasn't time. And the search had let the killers know that something in the hides they'd stolen could be identified. The time to find out would be when the buyers checked them. I got Biggs and Chester to cover two of the unloading barns, and I covered the third one. And finally, daylight came, and the haggling started. Son, you want to sell those hides? Better learn how to handle these skin and knife a little better. They're as good as any. They're full of holes, they ain't. Give you four dollars a hide for the bunch. You gave that last fellow eight. <laughs> He looked tougher than you. Six. I'll take six. Four. Take it or leave it. You think you can rob me, mister? Watch your mouth, boy. Here, none of that. Let me go. Easy, son. Go. Let me have that gun just so you won't be tempted. There, that's better. Give me that. Give it back. You can pick it up at my office whenever you're ready to leave town. Yeah, you look like a city boy to me. Where are you from? St. Louis? None of your business. When something's got you beat, son, there's no shame to admitting it and going home. Sometimes that takes a real man. Don't tell me what to do. Why don't you watch your own job? Why don't you leave me alone, Marshal? I ain't got a white buffalo hide. What'd you say, boy? You heard me. What do you know about a white buffalo hide? What everybody else knows, that you're looking for one. Everybody in town knows it. How? Because the old man whose sons were bushwhacked all liquored up over at the other barn, shooting off his mouth. Don't go away mad, Marshal. <laughs> Mr. Biggs wasn't at the barn where I'd left him. I cut through an alley to Front Street and headed for the saloons. I never got to him. Mr. Dillon? Mr. Dillon? What's the matter, Chester? Old man Biggs. Where is he? I'm looking for him. Well, he... He was over by the barn I was watching. Drunk. Going through the wagon. Yeah, I know about that. I was trying to get him to go back to his own barn, but all of a sudden, he took off. For where? I don't know. But there was one wagon he was watching in particular. The driver walked away from it with a package of some kind. That white hide? It could have been. I don't know. But Big sure thought so. He lit out after the fellow with blood in his eye. Which way? Down there where the boy's been hitching the empty wagon. Well, let's go. The old boy's drunk enough to make trouble. He's liable to kill somebody. Or get killed. Too late, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. It came from there behind that row of wagons. You stay here, Chester. Be careful, Mr. Dillon. 
rounded the corner wagon, Mr. Biggs was sprawled across a wagon tongue, his eyes dead and open, staring at the ground. And standing over him was Tennessee, a smile on his face, and his gun extended to me butt first. Looks like I'm in a mite of trouble, Marshal. He's dead, Tennessee. That's more than a mite. Uh, you take my gun for a while. You mean until after you hang? Wasn't figuring to be that serious. Not when a drunk follows me out here and throws down on me. If you're figuring on self-defense, forget it. Look at his gun. It isn't even caught. What's well, out of his holster, Marshal? That's enough. Law don't say I have to wait till he kills me. You'll have to make a jury believe that. No, well, you I... shouldn't have much trouble doing that, Marshal. What are you doing here, Mr. Kell? Oh, I just happened to follow Tennessee out here. Why? Well, you broke up our little argument in town. Thought I'd get him alone here. See if maybe he was still nursing a grudge he wanted to settle. But the old man beat me to it. Now, Tennessee here ain't exactly a friend of mine, as you know, but... I hate to see any man hang when he ain't guilty. Is that your personal verdict, Mr. Kill? That's right, Marshal. The old man threw down on him, and Tennessee had to kill him in self-defense. Chester. Yes, sir, Mr. Dillon? Which one of them had the package? This one. This is the fellow the old man was after. All right, Tennessee, where is it? I don't know anything about a package. Look in the wagon, Chester. See anything? Nothing here. I reckon you can give my gun back to me now. All right, Tennessee. Here. Thanks. But if you decide to use it again while you're in Dodge or any place else in Kansas, I hope I'm there when you do. Well, now, don't you fret, Marshal. I'm sure you will be. for the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. But first, action excitement thrills. That's Gangbusters. Gangbusters helps to fight crime by fearlessly naming the criminals. Listen for it later this evening on CBS Radio. Now, the second act of Gunsmoke. Just before sundown, we buried old man Biggs and his two sons up on Boot Hill. By the time the service was over and I rode down, darkness had fallen. And everything was going full blast. The town was roaring. Seemed like a good man, old Biggs. He was, Chester. So are his boys. Yeah, but there are too many men like Tennessee and Kell coming in, Mr. Dillon. They won't last, Chester. They'll keep coming, but they won't last. They'll take a gun and go against a man, but they won't sweat. They won't take root and build. We still gonna look for that hide? Yeah. Well, just what do you want me to do, Mr. Dillon? Tennessee and Kell will be in town, but their wagons are back there with the other empties. 
ride back and look them over. Well, they might have had somebody carry that package off for them. You might be, but they don't seem like partners, Mr. Dillon. From what I heard, you stopped them from gunfighting. Took more than one man to kill the Biggs boys, and more than one man and more than one wagon to cart the hides in. Well, you mean they staged that trouble just for you? Just for me. After they heard I was looking for that white hide. Well, why do you figure that, Mr. Dillon? When gunfighters start for their guns, nothing stops them, Chester. They both started, but they both stopped. I reckon you better take a look through those wagons. Yes, sir, Mr. Dillon. Uh, well, I meet you. I'll be checking the saloons. <laughs> One by one, I made the stops. The Long Branch, the Alafraganza, the Texas Trail. And one by one, they got quieter as I went in. As though each place was holding its breath, waiting for something to happen. The last place was a Mexican hangout. A long, dark walk. Marshal? Can't see me, can you, Marshal? No. No, I can't see you, son. Too bad. Because I got another gun. They sell them around here. And I ain't going back to St. Louis. You'll fire once, son, and if you don't kill me with that, and I'll kill you. I'll gamble on that, Marshal. He lurched from the shadows into the street, staggered, and fell. And then he rolled over on his back, and his eyes struggled for a minute like they were trying to remember something. And then he went blank. Well, he is right about one thing. He wasn't going back to St. Louis. Well, what do you know? The marshal's real handy with a gun. Stay out of this, Kel. But I may have something to talk over with you later. Meaning what? If you don't know it, then you got nothing to worry about. I've been hearing a lot about how fast you are with a gun, Dylan. Anything to it? I'm still alive. Yeah. This your hobby? Shooting kids? He was old enough to try to kill me. I don't like it, Marshal. That's too bad, Mr. Kell. The Chuck Kell I heard about would have loved it. They said he'd killed two kids under 16, one of them his own brother. No, you didn't hear the whole story, Marshal. The Kell you heard about killed a Marshal, too. You made the bid, Mr. Kell. And you got a gun. Use it or I'll take it away from you. Come and get it. Anytime. Here it is. 
How are you feeling, Mr. Dillon? I'm all right, Chester. Doc fixed your head. Wasn't much he could do for Kel, though. I hit him. If you didn't, he sure died for nothing. He was fast, all right. Boys say you made him look like a sleepy burrow. Never even cleared his holster. And my head says different. You didn't get that from Kel. What do you mean? Tennessee was up the street with a rifle. He creased you. Huh? Where is he now? I don't know, Mr. Dillon. He rode out of town before I could stop him. I was the only one who saw him. I was coming up street to find you. All right. Let's get out of here. Did you find anything in the wagons? No, sir. But I found Tennessee's wife. Wife? That's right, Mr. Dillon. In a small wagon next to his. He's a squaw man. His wife's an Indian girl. Well, let's find her. All right, Chester. Which way? Edge of town, Mr. Dillon. Well, let's go. You talked to the wife? Yes, sir. Found out Tennessee and Kel were friends, all right. They left her here night before last and arranged to meet her here today. She said they were driving empty wagons when they left her. Ask her what tribe she belonged to? Didn't have to ask, Mr. Dillon. I could tell by her beads. She's an Arapaho. She was there, all right. Crouched by the wheel of a wagon. Her face was bloody. And she stared into a small campfire. Rocking back and forth without a sound. She wasn't beat up when I left her, Mr. Dillon. Where's your husband? He gone. Gone where? He gone. Tell me which way he went. I'll bring him back to you. No. You love man. Your husband had a white buffalo hide, didn't he? Tell me. No. Other man. Kill white buffalo. Then your husband took the hide away from him? Well, he buy. He buy hide. He didn't buy him. He killed two men to get him. He killed with Indian paint on his face. He left an Arapaho war rattle. He wants the blame to come to your people. If the white men think the Arapahoes are on the war path, the soldiers will come. No. Arapaho. Peaceful. Where's the white hide? What'd your husband do with it? He tell me. Bury it. Where? Where's it buried? There. Back there. By tree. Go dig it up, Chester. And stay with her like it back. You going after him, Mr. Dillon? As soon as she tells me which way. All right, Mr. Dillon. You're white man. No good. Now, tell me which way he went. You let him go. He not come back. I can't let him go. If I do, the soldiers will come after your people. He beat you, and he ran away from you. Now he'll bring death to your tribe unless I get him. Where did he go? 
Here I do. I won't sleep. I rode east. Tennessee had had about an hour's start, but I figured to make up most of that before sunrise. The prairie was open and flat except for an occasional roll. And the Arkansas River would keep him from cutting south. His best bet for a fresh horse would be Kinsley, and I rode hard for it. It was just turning daylight when I rode in. Well, howdy, Marshal. Morning. Good morning. Got a place I can water my horse. Trough right there. Just let him loose. He'll find it. Thank you. Looks like you come a long way. Dodge. Now, the fella here just a few minutes ago been riding hard, too. He come from up Pawnee Way, though. Tall, dark, riding a vinegar roan? Yeah, that's right. You get a fresh horse here? I'd send my boy out to corral to get one for him. He'll be back soon. You mean he's still here in town? Yeah. Asked about breakfast, so I sent him over to the Witter Hilliard's place. Right over there, across the road. Thank you. I'll be back. Say, you after that fellow, Marshal? Yes? Understand your servant breakfast, ma'am. Why, sure thing, Marshal. Dylan! That's right. Give me a clear way out the door. Or I'll kill you. Come by me, Tennessee. I'll come shooting. That's all right. But just be sure you get me this time. Marshal. He looks kind of dead. Yeah. Bad one, huh? Yes, um. Gunfighter. Thief. Killer. What's your name, Marshal? Dillon, ma'am. Matt Dillon. I um uh, I'm sorry about Marshal. When my husband brought me out here 15 years ago, Indians burned this place down three times. I'm used to killing. You want to carry him out? I'll go fix you that breakfast. Thank you, ma'am. It's a long ride back to Dodge. Gunsmoke, transcribed under the direction of Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. 
Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Joel Murcott with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in tonight's cast were Stan Waxman, John Daner, and Larry Dobkin with Sam Edwards, Lillian Bayef, Tom Holland, and Mary Lansing. Farley Bayer is Chester. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. <laughs> Something new in CBS Radio Newsroom coverage, World News with Robert Trout presents as a special weekly feature an interview with a crack CBS Radio News correspondent. This correspondent flies in from his post overseas to give you his authoritative eyewitness viewpoint on latest developments. Tomorrow afternoon on most of these same stations, World News with Robert Trout. This is Clarence Cassell speaking. And remember, from now to November, you'll find intensive impartial campaign coverage on the CBS Radio Network. up a copy of Conflict with Shadows today from your favorite online bookstore. From Hollywood, the George Burns and Gracie Allen Show for Hormel and Spam. an answer to that age-old question, what can I give the family for breakfast? Serve Spam and Eggs, a breakfast surprise that is completely satisfying and so easy to fix. Just open a can of Spam, cut off thin slices of this delicious meat, and fry quickly in a hot pan. With eggs sunny side up, those tender, juicy, sizzling hot slices of Spam are sure to please every appetite. Isn't it true the only reason you use a certain kind of food is because it's good and good for you? Friends, you'll find both delicious taste, and top-notch quality in Spam. A perfect blend of pork shoulder with ham meat added. Pre-cooked to preserve all the natural juicy flavor of these choice cuts of meat, seasoned according to Spam's carefully guarded formula, this grand-tasting meat of many uses makes the hit cold or hot. Ask for Spam, S-P-A-M, when you shop tomorrow. Serve Spam and eggs. 
and then try the other easy recipes on the label. And here they are, your two Spambassadors of fun, George and Gracie. Well, thank you very much. Am I happy tonight? Oh, you should be, George. Winning that $200,000 breach of contract suit against Elsie Trellefast. And boy, did I celebrate. Say, you know that judge took me home after the trial, and he tried to kiss me, but I wouldn't let him. He tried to kiss you? Yeah. He must be a pretty good lawyer. What makes you think so? Well, all evening he kept trying to break my will. Gracie, that happens to be a very fine judge. Did you know that he's greatly feared on the bench? Well, I don't know about the bench, but he certainly scared the life out of me in the rumble seat. <laughs> anyway, I'm very happy that the case is over. Let's forget it. Yes, George, it must be quite an ordeal to have the arm of the law after you. Oh, that's nothing. I had it around me. <laughs> what a feeling that was. To get to a court and find out the man I hit with the car is the judge who was trying my case. And as soon as I saw him, I got five years older. Oh, good, George. Now you can start collecting your Social Security. Yeah. <laughs> nice going, bud. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, running into the judge was nothing to worry about, though. It was just a little accident. Nothing to worry about? Do you know that? Do you know what you can get in Los Angeles for hitting a pedestrian? Yeah, a driver's license. <laughs> well, anyway, I want to thank you all for being my character witnesses. Thank you. I get it, I get it. Yes, fine, fine. Marty, what's Senor Lee saying? He was proud of you at the trial when you took the offensive. Oh, well, thanks, Senor Lee. In fact, he says you were the most offensive man in the whole courtroom. That's right. If that, if that Artie Shaw doesn't keep that guitar player quiet, he's going to find a pink slip in his envelope. George, I don't think Artie Shaw wears a pink slip. Of course he doesn't wear a pink slip. I know something that you don't know. Artie, what's the matter with that Senor Lee? Well, he's unhappy about his job. Well, if he's unhappy on Saturday night, why don't you give him a little extra? A little extra wouldn't make him un- wouldn't make him happy. I mean. Well, your little redheaded extra from Paramount would. <laughs> Gracie, that's only a platonic friendship. Should happen to me. <laughs> uh, Senor Shaw, why don't you introduce me to her? She's very cuticle. <laughs> cuticle? Hey, Don Juan, let me give you a little bit of advice. Women are slow poison. I'm in a hurry. <laughs> Did you know that I had less trouble in court last week than I'm having here? Oh, you should worry, George. You saved two hundred thousand dollars. What two hundred thousand? Boy, if I had that kind of money, I'd spend one hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine dollars and ninety-five cents for spam. What's the other nickel for? Uh, call up the grocer in case I run, run out. out. I thought so, yes. Well, stop with that $200,000. Gracie, you know I haven't got that kind of money. Oh, what about your salary each week? What about your hat? <laughs> what, uh, what are you laughing at? I don't get it. <laughs> what? Why does everybody pick on me? Am I always going to be a fall guy? Am I such an awful dope? Am I ever going to mean anything on this program? Is he? Tune in next week and find out. Oh, God. Well, I'm going down to write out that check for $25 for court expenses, which will clear up that Elsie Trellefast case once and for all. Don't pay it. Don't pay it? No. Today is the last day, and if I don't pay it, I'll be sued for contempt of court. My friend Millard Byer will fix it for you. Don't pay it. Millard Byer? Yes. Who's he? Probably some small-time fixer. Small-time? He only happens to be on the crime commission. 
The crime commission? Sure. Every time there's a crime, he gets a commission. But look, Gracie, it's only $25. Don't pay it. Millen will fix it for you. I'll phone him. Well, what can I do? Oh, let me see now. Where can he be? Oh, oh, yes. Operator, operator, give me the Cotton Club, New York City. New York City? Hello? Cotton Club? Is Millen Byer there? Oh. That's swell. That's good. That's wonderful. Gracie, this is costing a fortune. Is Millard Byer there? No, that's grand. Wait a minute. What? That's marvelous. What's grand? What's marvelous? The music of the Cotton Club. Want to listen to it? It's swell. Give me that phone. Give me <laughs> Now this movie, Bad Charlie and Little will sing I'll Never Smile Again. Calling New York City to save $25. So I say, I don't want to hear any more about Millet Buyer. That last call cost me $19. I've got to pay this $25 court expenses. Today is the last day, so stay out of it. <laughs> now, wait a minute, wait a minute, Gracie. I don't mean to hurt your feelings. I know you were trying to help me. Oh, forgive me, Gracie. Now I feel awful. I feel like a skunk, a scoundrel, a rat. Gracie, will you please forgive me? I'm not crying about that. No? What are you crying about? Did you see that picture, Rebecca? It was very sad, but will you stop crying? I still haven't sent the check. So George, before you, you do that, let me make one more tiny little phone call to Millard. Well, all right, but no New York. No. 
Number, please. Give me Gladstone 1131. That's better. Montreal. Montreal. Montreal, Canada speaking. I want to speak to Millard Byer. How do you spell the first name? With difficulty. Did you say Hillard Byer? What? Did you say Hillard Byer? No, Millard Byer. M as in Millard. I as in Millard. L as in Millard. A as in Millard. R as in Millard. And D as in Dave. Here's your copy. Hello, Dave speaking. Dave? How do you spell it? D isn't Dave, A isn't Dave, V isn't Dave, E isn't Elmer. Hello, Elmer. Hello, Dave. What's Wh- going on here? Where's Take Miller? it easy. He's out with Slav Go Vorka pitch. How do you spell it? S isn't Dave, L isn't Look, will you hang up? Hang up! That call will be $152. Charge it to George Burns. $152? Give me that phone. Who's this? This is George Burns. George Burns of the radio? Yes, George Burns of the radio. I never miss you. You don't miss me? I don't hear you and I don't miss you. Thanks. <laughs> Gracie, so far it cost me $171 to save $25 and I just assumed... George, I just thought of something. You saved $200,000 in that Elsie Trellifast case... And if you'd like to go into business with me... Look, look. Could, I don't want to go into any business. I'd like to pay my court costs. Today is the last day. Sure, Joey, you better go into some business because the way the income tax is today... What do you yeah. know about income tax? What is income tax? Well... Yeah, what is it? The way it works is the government takes your salary. Yes. That's it. The government takes your salary. <laughs> you said it. George, you don't have to invest all that $200,000. I've got $200,000? Who believes that? You know, I spend a few dollars. Who believes that? It cost me $50,000 a year to live. It isn't worth it. It is worth it. Who believes that? Look, will you people stop worrying about me? Uh, Senor Burns? I've got my own troubles, you know. Senor Burns? I've got to send that check back. Hey, Poopsie! <laughs> Stop calling me Poopsie. What is it? Uh, Senor Burns, if you want to go into business, why don't you buy a string of racehorses like Bang Crosby? It's not Bang, it's Bing. Bang. Bing. Bang. Bing. Bang. Bing. It's Fourth of July? (laughs) Anyway, racehorses are not Crosby's business. That's his hobby, horses. And they run like hobby horses. (laughs) Now, stop. I've had enough of this. I've got to make out that check for $25. Today is the last day. But, George... I don't want to be helped anymore. Gracie's silly phone calls have... They, they've already cost me $171. 320 320 I did it again. You did it again? Honolulu. You called Honolulu? Millibar wasn't there. And what cost all that money? Well, I spoke to a hula dancer, and you know what gossips they are. Hula dancers or gossips? I never saw such busy bodies. <laughs> Gracie, I owed the court a few dollars, which I was very happy to pay. And now I owe the phone company three hundred and twenty dollars. Four hundred and eighty. Four hundred and eighty? I'm going to do it again. You're going to do it again? Give me the phone. Get away from that phone. Get away from that phone. Gracie, get away from that phone. Man, will you open the door? Four years in Harvard, and this is what I do for a living. Everything happens to me. Hello. Oh, hello. Don't you remember me? I'm your brother, Willie. Oh, sure, I remember you. I'll send you the $20 at the end of the week. 
Well, I thought maybe if I made up a joke, you'd make it 30. Willie, look, will you go home? Go home. I have a very funny joke. Have you got a sleeping tablet? Why, have you got a headache? No, that's not the joke. You're just supposed to say why, and then you hear some stuff. <laughs> well, all right. Why do you want a sleeping tablet? I've got a date with a dream. <laughs> no? No. Don't forget to send me the 20. Okay, goodbye. By the way, Goldie's little boy got a gold star for being a monitor. That makes me very happy. Goodbye. <laughs> Look, sound man, the roof of the building will cave in with those door slams. You know, there are worse jobs than being a sound man. Mr. Burns, my friends will be very glad to hear that. Good. You see, one of them wrote a treatise on technocracy. Another one discovered the new element, thermalin. Another one of them won the Phillips Prize for Chemical Research. And they've all invited me to the annual outing of our honorary society. And I suppose they're ashamed of you being a sound man. They are. Then why did they ask you along to the outing? I am the only one who has a car. <laughs> I'd better write out that check before it's too late or... Uh, where's, where's Gracie? I'm here. Gracie, are you still on the phone? Please, please. Hello? Gracie, why are you speaking so loud? Well, you've got to talk loud when you talk to Egypt. Egypt? <laughs> Doesn't this Millard Byer ever go to Pomona or Long Beach? Sorry, Millard Byer isn't here. He left for the West Indies. Have you tried Bahamas? Yes, I've tried Bahamas. But they're very uncomfortable to sleep in, don't you think so? Oh, oh, I sleep. That's an extra $20, that blow on the phone. Gracie, this is costing me a fortune. <laughs> Will you hang up? That will be $700 for three minutes. Charge it to George Burns. $700? I won't pay it. George Burns won't pay that money. He says it's an outrage. He says you've got a lot of nerve, and where do you get that stuff? You just spoke another minute. It's $900. $900? Give me that phone. Operator, it's bad enough to charge $700 for three minutes without charging an extra $200 for a minute of explanation. You can't charge $900. You just spoke another minute. It's $1,100. $1,100? Give me that phone. No, you don't. $1,600 to save $25. Hmm, what a phone bill. You don't have to pay it. What do you mean I don't have to pay it? Well, I, I know somebody who can fix it. Operator, give me Newfoundland. Get away from that telephone. Get away from it.
Marty Shaw, his clarinet and orchestra playing Begin the Begin. You know, it was Begin the Begin that made Artie Shaw, and it was Artie Shaw that made Begin the Begin. Of course, that was back in 1937 when Begin the Begin began. <laughs> Thanks, George. Now, can I pass the plate? What plate? The one that's loose in your mouth. <laughs> My brother Willie must have made up that joke. Operator, operator, are you sure Miller Byer isn't there? Gracie, are you still on the telephone? Oh, please, George. Operator, have you tried a igloo? Igloo? That's in Alaska. Well, sure. It doesn't cost $700 to call Glendale. $700? Give me that phone. George, while you've got some money left, you'd better go into business with me before it's too late. Look, in the first place, bud, I'm not going into business with you. And in the second place, you're in a business. What business? Selling spam, remember? Why, George, I'm surprised at you. Selling spam isn't a business, it's a pleasure. Oh, I was naughty again. <laughs> so you were. Well, folks, you've all been amused by the stories your children have brought home about their experiences at school... But here's a letter from Winnetka, Illinois, that sort of tickled us. The reason is obvious, as you'll discover in a moment. The writer said, My youngster in the third grade insisted on extra sandwiches in his lunchbox. After a few questions, I found out why. When the youngsters trade sandwiches at school, a sandwich has a trade-in value of two ordinary sandwiches. Now, I don't know how many deals are made each day, the letter concludes, but I thought you might like to know how children regard spam in our neighborhood. Well, mothers, have you tried Spam for school lunches? Youngsters go for this delicious meat in a big way. You see, in making Spam, Hormel uses the choicest cuts. Pure pork shoulder with ham meat added. All ready to eat as soon as you open the Spam can, this tender, juicy meat saves you time. Whether you fix a school lunchbox or the youngsters come running home at noon, Spam is wholesome food that sticks to the ribs and satisfies the children's taste. So make Spam, which is for school lunches. The directions, along with other cold or hot uses, are right on the label. When you shop tomorrow, ask your food dealer for Spam, a Hormel product. Slice it, dice it, fry it, bake it, cold or hot, Spam hits the spot. Well, slice it, dice it, dice it, slice it. No matter how I slice it, I'm still in the ground. Fine thing. To save $25, I now owe the phone company $3,200. I know something that you don't know. You did it again. Tahiti. Tahiti? I phoned during a hurricane. Mildred Byer wasn't there. Neither was Tahiti. <laughs> Gracie, some dark night when nobody is looking... George, I... you don't have to worry anymore. I don't. Uh... Now, I'm not going to make any more phone calls. Oh, well, at last. <laughs> <laughs> I told the long-distance operator to spare no expense and for her to locate Millard Byer. I see. That's much better. Look, Gracie, some dark night when nobody is looking... Hello? South Africa calling. We have information concerning Millard Byer. $500. Collect. Charge it to George Burns. I'm nicely going bankrupt. Copycat. Quiet. Here's your party. Thanks. Hello, America. Stanley speaking. Have you found Miller Byer? Miller Byer? I'm still looking for Dr. Livingston. Goodbye. <laughs> well, it cost me $500 to find out that Stanley is still looking for Livingston. Come in. Mr. Burns? That's right. I'm from the sheriff's office. I have a warrant for you for failure to pay your court expenses. 
Court expenses? You mean the $25 I've been trying to pay all evening? Well, here it is. I'm sorry, brother, but it's too late now. But, mister, I always pay my bills on time, don't I, Artie? That's right, mister. He always pays my salary on time. You see? Fifty cents down and the rest on time. <laughs> now, look, Artie. I'm sorry. I'll have to take this warrant. It's Judge Hamill's orders. Judge Hamill, that old fogey... Just be... a moment. Judge Hamill is the best judge in this county. Next best. What do you mean, next best? Of all the judges in the county, he next best. <laughs> Well, mister, I'm not going to take this warrant because I had every intention of paying the, paying the $25. Uh, Senor Sheriff, don't worry. Senor Burns has an honest face. Really? Honest, that's a face. <laughs> now, look, I'm not going to take that warrant. Well, you'll have to. Well, give I... it to me. Gracie, Gracie, you can't tear that up. We certainly can. Tearing a warrant, eh? Well, mister, you'll be fined $1,000 for contempt of court. Oh, yeah? Well, George knows no advice who can fix it for him. Someone who can fix it, eh? Well, that's bribery. That'll cost you another $1,000. I didn't say anyone was going to fix it for me. No denying it, eh? Well, that's perjury. <laughs> That'll cost you another $1,000. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did you ever hear of me? I happen to be George Burns of the radio, and I get $5,000 a week. For what? For being a comedian. Taking money under false pretenses. <laughs> Well, now you are in trouble. I'll see you in court. Well, Gracie, I can thank you for all of this. Oh, it was nothing. I'd do it for anybody. Instead of paying $25, I wind up paying $25,000. Hello? This is Zanzibar calling. Zanzibar? Is the Noah's buyer there? No, he left last week for Mandalay. Mandalay? Where's Mandalay? Where the dawn comes up like thunder out of China. George Burns. Give me that phone. Give me that phone. And I don't want any more phone calls. Don't touch that phone. Well, it might be Lord Byer. I don't care. Don't touch that phone. Well, never mind. Just say I'm not in. Hello? What? Who? George Burns? Oh, I'm sorry. He's not here. Goodbye. Hmm. Oh, you should have answered it. Who was it? Miller Byer? Hmm? No, it was the Pot of Gold program. The Pot of Gold? way for you to get A-plus from your children on the school lunches you fix. Serve Spam. This grand-tasting meat makes a hit with active children who want food with a swell flavor, food that fills you up. You'll like Spam because this satisfying meat is all ready to eat as soon as you open the can. Just slice Spam and make Spamwiches for the lunchbox. Or serve plain with a vegetable, bread and butter, and milk if the youngsters pile in on you at noon. Let Spam, S-P-A-M, solve your school lunch problems. Ask your food dealer for Spam, and be sure to try the easy recipes on the label. Well, thank you, bud. Well, Gracie, say goodnight. Goodnight. Judge, are you going home? No, I'm good and sore. $25,000 for phone calls. Mr. Burns, you've got no, no reason to be sore. You had a swell show tonight. I watched it from the first row. Well, who are you? I'm Millard Beyer. Good night, folks. Good night. Thank you.
again next Monday night, same time, same station, for another George Burns and Gracie Allen show, with Artie Shaw and his orchestra and the smoothies. Until then, this is Bud Easton reminding you to remember that cold or hot, spam hit the spot. Have you tried Hormel Chili Con Carne? You may think you don't like chili, but Chili Con Carne, the way Hormel makes it, is different, and everybody likes it. Double your money back if you don't like it. Try Hormel Chili Con Carne tomorrow. This is the National Broadcasting Company. A word of advice for those of you who suffer from acid indigestion, heartburn, or gas. Who do you know about the little white tablet in the little green pocket roll? Just waiting for the moment when you need them to bring your acid indigestion under control. Chums are the little white tablets in the little green pocket roll. Chums for the tummy. Tums formula has never been surpassed for effectiveness. Always carry Tums, ten cents. Free roll pack, a quarter. Or get the new six roll Tums pack with free metal carrier, only 49 cents. This is Elliot Reed. And welcome once again to more New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Tom Conway and Nigel Bruce. Today, radio is comprised of news, lots of talk, and music. But there was a time when radio was so much more. As a mass medium of entertainment, one could turn the radio on and tune into different programs during the week that would present comedy, drama, and variety... And all of it free, just as network television does today. Radio goes back to the 1910s, when there were experiments in broadcasting. However, it wasn't until the 1920s that radio, as a viable medium for entertainment, took form. By then, broadcasting was nearly perfected. And David Sarnoff, head of the RCA company decided to establish a linked network of radio stations that would bring entertainment into as many homes as possible. Thus, NBC was formed. A few years later, William Paley established the CBS radio network. As each year went by, radio transmitters and receivers were fine-tuned until the day one merely had to turn a switch, wait until the tubes warmed up, there were no transistors or IC chips for instant turn-on as we have today. And suddenly, one's living room was flooded with entertainment. Many a child would be safely tucked into bed, a radio beside them on a night table, 
and it was that radio that took them into slumberland. Instead of a parent sitting on the side of the bed reading a story until their child drifted off, it was the radio that lulled the child into a gentle night of dreams. Writers, directors, producers, and actors all joined forces to bring the best talent to the airwaves. And behind them were the engineers who set the transmission volume and ensured that each and every broadcast would be beamed into the ether to be picked up by every radio across America. And just as people switched to various television stations today, so it was with radio. As the radio dial was turned from station to station, different shows reached the ears until that one show so eagerly waited for was found. During that golden age, there were four major networks that spanned America. NBC, CBS, ABC, and the Mutual Broadcasting System. There were also individual networks, such as the Don Lee Network, which linked Northern and Southern California. Add to that hundreds of local stations all across America presenting their own broadcasts. It was endless, and it gave the listener a chance to pick and choose his favorite shows. In truth, there was far more programming to choose from then than there is today, even with cable and satellite transmissions. And now, let's turn our dial to the ABC network and listen to Tom Conway and Nigel Bruce in The Adventure of Black Angus. Kremel Hair Tonic and Kremel Shampoo present the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson and Tom Conway as Sherlock Holmes. Well, once again, it's time to keep our weekly date with the Dean of Storytellers, Dr. Watson. I'm sure he's expecting it. I am indeed, Mr. Bell. Good evening. You're punctual to the minute, as usual. This is one doctor's appointment I'll never be late for. Oh, that's very nice of you to say, some of us. Uh, drop your usual chair and settle down. Yeah. Ah, that's it. <laughs> Fire in the grape, the lights turned low, and a wind howling outside. It's a perfect setting for a Sherlock Holmes adventure. Which one is it going to be? Well, tonight I thought I'd tell you a most weird and macabre story. Concerns werewolves on the wild moors of Scotland and the strange happenings that took place in McKinnon Castle. Dear, dear, werewolves and haunted castles. My hair's beginning to stand on. Please get on with the story, Dr. In due time, Mr. Bell, but first, haven't you a little uh, business with our listeners? Business that also has to do with the hair? Business? (laughs) Oh, no, Dr. Watson, this isn't business. It's a pleasure. But thanks for the reminder. And I know you men will thank me again and again for this hot tip. Try Kremel hair tonic. Just notice how Kremel makes stubborn hair so much easier to comb. How your hair falls in place just where you want it and stays that way all day long. Now, be honest, men. Did your hair ever look better? You see, Kremel gives even dull, lifeless-looking hair a rich, attractive luster. It makes hair look so handsome and alive. Yet Kremel never glues hair down. It never leaves it looking or feeling greasy or dirty. Just try Kremel hair tonic once. 
and you readily see why it's such a nationwide favorite. Now, Dr. Watson, how about the werewolf? Well, Mr. Bell, the adventure began innocently enough on a slate gray November afternoon in Baker Street, just before the turn of the century. Holmes and I were seated comfortably on either side of a crackling fire when shortly before tea time, there was a jangle on our doorbell and a few minutes later, a young girl who Mrs. Hudson announced as Miss Victor was standing before us. A young girl dressed in a wedding gown. She was in a great state of excitement. In fact, almost hysterical. Mr. Holmes, you must help me. There's no one else to whom I can turn. There, I don't know what there, to do. There, there, my dear. Compose yourself. If you will just tell us the facts, Miss Victor. Well, at three o'clock this afternoon, I was to have been married to David McKinnon. Any relation to the Ayrshire McKinnons? The son and heir to the estate, Mr. Holmes. Oh, really? I think I met one of the family in a shooting party a few years ago. I remember distinctly... Some other time, Watson, please. Oh. Miss Victor's problem is immediate. Oh, sorry. Oh. You say uh, you were to have been married, Miss Victor. <laughs> What occurred to prevent the ceremony? David just... just didn't appear. Oh, it was dreadful, Mr. Holmes. I waited and waited, and finally I knew he wasn't coming. You've had no word from him since? No, none. I went to his hotel as soon as I left the church. And what did you discover? That... that he'd received a visit from an elderly Scotsman this morning. And the porter said that immediately afterward they left together in a cab for St. Francis Station. St. Pancras? Undoubtedly their destination was Scotland, Holmes. Quite. Oh, Mr. Holmes, you must find David for me. I know he's been kidnapped. Miss Victor, a man who's being kidnapped does not walk out of a hotel in broad daylight and order a cab. But something's happened to him. He wouldn't do a thing like this of his own volition. Are you quite sure that you didn't have some lover's quarrel, some little tiff in the last few days that might have made your fiancé change his mind? Of course I'm sure, Dr. Watson. We've never had any misunderstanding. Only something dreadful could have made him leave. I shall do everything in my power to find out what it was, Miss Victor. Oh, thank you, Mr. Holmes. Oh, Watson, get me the railway guide. Oh, there you are. It's on the table beside you. I knew you'd help me. I hope you'll be successful. Ah. Now, Watson, if you'll pack a couple of bags and meet me at the station at 9.15 in time for the Scottish Express, I have a few simple inquiries to make. You're shockingly out of condition, Watson. Oh, well. A little sprint like that shouldn't leave you so winded. Oh, never mind about my condition. Where have you been for the last four hours? Delving into the back issue piles of the Times. Very instructive. You should try it sometime. Rubbish. There's nothing duller than yesterday's news. I doubt it would call the legend of the McKinnon family dull, Watson. On the contrary... Oh, so that's what you've been looking up. Yes. It's a history that goes back several hundred years of brawling and bloodshed. The founder of the clan was a 14th century Scottish warrior by the name of Wolfhound McKinnon. He is reputed to have been so incredibly vicious in battle that his enemies accused him of being a werewolf. A vampire? Oh, come now. Merely repeating a 500-year-old legend. The point is that the present head of the clan, the father of the disappearing fiancé today, is known as Black Angus. He's a dominant, thoroughly hated man whose local reputation is as frightening in our day and age as his predecessors was five centuries ago. Oh, that's all very interesting, Holmes, but I don't see why you should get so excited over a 500-year-old legend. Well, you see, Watson, I found another rather curious fact in the paper. Oh, what was that? Several times during the last few months, sheepdogs have been found dead in the vicinity of McKinnon Castle with their throats torn out. Good heavens!
Tennis, you've lived in this village a good many years, I expect. Oh, my life, sir. And this inn was my favorite before me. We're interested in some of the local beauty spots, particularly McKinnon Castle. McKinnon Castle is no beauty spot, sir. Oh, really? Devil's Castle, we call it. There isn't a one of us in the village that wouldn't have been glad to see the ground open up and swallow the place. I and every McKinnon who lives there. Why are the McKinnons so hated, Thomas? They're no men. They're monsters. A McKinnon thinks that because he owns the land, he owns the air among breeds, too. And Black Angus is the biggest, blackest devil of them all. Black Angus? You mean the present laird? Aye. And if he keeps up with his devil's work, he'll be the deadlier before long. Give me her blood pressure. What's been going on, Thomas? It's the sheepdog, sir. Hereabouts, a man's sheepdog is his living. And yet six more have been killed in the past two weeks. And all of the poor wee beasties lying there on the moors with their throats torn out. How can you blame McKinnon for that? Surely some animal... Aye, sir. Aye. An animal that stands on two feet. What are you suggesting, Thomas? I'm suggesting nothing, sir. Except those dead dogs all had human teeth marks on their throats. Are you insinuating that Black Angus is a vampire? Oh, now, now, now. Really, my dear father. Oh, we've seen him at night, when the moon was high, galloping across the moors on his big black horse. And the next morning, there's always been a dead sheepdog. You've seen him yourself? Well, well, no, sir. But there are those that have. There's no mistaking him with his big coat flapping and his hat pulled down over his eyes. What an extraordinary business. Interesting. Very interesting. Do you see that gentleman that just came in, sitting by himself in the corner there, sir? The man in the grey overcoat? Aye. His name's Humphreys. He can tell you more about the McKinnons than I can. He's a cousin of the family. And even though he's related and lives at the castle... He's as nice a gentleman as you'd meet up with. Thank you for the information, Thomas. I think perhaps we'll go and have a chat with him. Come on, Watson. Right, sir. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you. Glad to be of service, gentlemen. Excuse me, Mr. Humphreys. Aye. May we take the liberty of introducing ourselves? I'm Sherlock Holmes, and this is my friend, Dr. Watson. Uh, How do you do, Mr. Humphreys? How do you do? Won't you uh, sit down? Thank you. Thomas tells me you are a cousin of the McKinnon family. I am. Uh, do you know them? We're particularly interested in one of them, Mr. Humphreys. Yes, in David McKinnon. Ah, David's a very fine boy. You knew he was to have been married in London yesterday? Aye, I knew that. Did you also know that just before his wedding, he suddenly disappeared, Mr. Humphreys? Gentlemen, may I ask the reason for your interest in young David? That's a very fair question, sir. I have been asked by Miss Victor, David's fiancée, to try and find the young man. Oh, I see. Mm. It's a very unfortunate business. Mr. Humphreys, shortly before the wedding yesterday, David McKinnon had a visitor in his hotel. They left together, presumably to catch the express for Scotland. And poor Miss Victor was left stranded at the church. The little thing was, was heartbroken. Oh, she would be. Uh, uh, Mr. Holmes, uh, I wish I could help you in some way, but... Uh... You can, Mr. Humphreys. How? By telling us what message you delivered to David at his hotel yesterday. But I... Oh, come now, Mr. Humphreys. The man seen to be leaving the hotel with David was wearing a grey raglan coat, such as you are wearing. In addition, I observed as we sat down that you're reading yesterday's edition of the London Times. 
Even if you subscribed to it, it couldn't have reached you here in Scotland through the post this speedily. Amazing, Holmes. Elementary, isn't it, Mr. Humphrey? Well, I don't know about that, but uh, your deduction is correct, yes. Yes, Mr. Holmes, I did return with David from London yesterday. What was the message you were sent to give him, may I ask? The message that decided him not to go through with his marriage? I'm afraid I can't answer that question, Mr. Holmes. Though I may tell you, it's a family secret of the gravest importance. Hmm. Well, in that case, our only recourse is to go to McKinnon Castle and pursue our inquiries there. Well, I imagine that would be best, gentlemen, but... uh... Frankly, I doubt if you'll gain admittance. Angus is a willful man with a terrible temper, and when he knows you want to see David... We've handled terrible men before, haven't we, Watson? Yes, indeed. I remember that afternoon in Baker Street when Dr. Grimsby Royal picked up the poker and was Yes, Watson. You can regale Mr. Humphreys with that some other time. Mm -hmm. But now I think we'd best be starting for the castle. Uh, uh, Mr. Holmes, if by any chance you do see Angus, I must ask you not to mention that you've talked to me. I... If he finds out, there might be trouble. All right, Mr. Humphreys. Come along, Watson. Troy, I wish they'd put some springs in this vehicle. It's worse than an Irish jaunting car. If Thomas's directions are to be believed, we should see the castle when we get to the crest of this hill. This Black Angus seems to be quite a lovable character. Even Humphreys, his, his cousin, seems to be terrified of him. man was positively shaking. Yes, I noticed that. Ah, that must be the castle now. Hi, George. Forbidding-looking place, isn't it? Yes. Watson, rein in your horse. Well, back, well, back, well, back. What is it, Holmes? Look. Lying by the side of the road. Just a dead dog. Yes, a dead sheep dog. Come on. Uh, the dog's throat has been torn out. Yes. And look here, Watson. Look at these marks on the throat. Good heavens, Holmes. They look like they are the marks of human teeth. gentlemen. Is the lad at home? I'm sorry, sir, but the lad will not see people who have an appointment. Then will you please give him a message? But the two... Tell him that Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson have come here from London to see him. Yes, my good man, and tell him it's on a very important and confidential business. If you'll wait here in the hall, I'll give him the message, gentlemen. But he'll not see you. He'll not see you. Stupid old ass. Anyone think he owned the castle? Watson, have a look at these two portraits. <laughs> a couple of grim-looking characters. Give me the creeps. I think we may reasonably assume they're McKinnon ancestors. Do you notice something odd about them? Well, the men are smiling. If you call that smiling, it looks more like leering to me. <laughs> Whatever it is, it shows their teeth. Notice the abnormal length of the eye teeth? Quite curious. The teeth marks on the dead sheep dog. Quite. Who he is. Black Angus seems to be living up to his name. I'm sorry, gentlemen, but the lair will not see you. He asks that you please leave at once. A bit of an understatement. You may tell him we're not leaving here until we've seen Mr. David McKinnon. I'm sorry, Just sir. Just a but... moment. 
I'm David McKinnon. You are splendid. We've come here on behalf of... I know where you're here, gentlemen. I must ask that you leave at once. But, Miss Victor, your fiancé... After all, you know gentlemen, you... Gentlemen, you heard my father's message. Please go. As for Miss Victor, I have no interest in hearing anything concerning her. Good day. Come, Watson. I think perhaps our visit was old-timed. This way, please, gentlemen. Let's get away from here. Unprincipled young Cather, David. I'd like to give him a good thrashing. Might be interesting to talk to David McKinnon when he's away from the influence of Black Angus. Oh, you're wasting your time, Holmes. A man's a bounder. Besides, they'll never let us in the house again. By the front door, true. However, we can still try the back. Leave your hat and coat in the bushes here, old chap. Rumple up your hair, dirty your face, and adopt that delightful Scottish dialect of yours. For the moment, we will be plumbers. Plumbers? How do we know they need plumbers? In an old castle like this, you can always be sure of one fact. Something must inevitably be wrong with the drains. They always need plumbers. Holmes, do you think it's safe? I mean, if Black Angus discovers us, he may be dangerous. I'm afraid that's a chance we'll have to take. Come along, Watson, and try to look as much like a plumber as possible. In just a moment, Dr. Watson will continue the story of Black Angus. But first, here's something which should certainly interest you men about Kreml hair tonic. Kreml is one of the greatest improvements ever made in the history of hair tonics. It's been especially developed to keep dry, unruly hair in perfect order all day long. Always looking its best with a nice, rich luster. Yet Kreml never gives hair that objectionable, greasy, patent leather look. That kind of hair went out of style with handlebar mustaches. No, Kreml goes in for modern, handsome hair grooming. And it does lots more than just keep hair looking handsome. Kreml removes dandruff flakes. It also promptly relieves itching of dry scalp and leaves the scalp feeling so clean and alive. May I suggest that tomorrow, when you're out for your Sunday walk or drive, you stop and buy a bottle of Kreml at any drug counter. It's spelled K-R-E-M-L. Kreml hair tonic. Now, Dr. Watson, did you and Sherlock Holmes manage to get into McKinnon Castle disguised as plumber? We did, Mr. Bell. Holmes is right about the drains. We were welcomed at the service entrance with open arms, figuratively speaking. Of course, we, we were shown down to the basement and left to our own devices. As soon as the coast was cleared, I found myself following Sherlock Holmes as he stealthily mounted an, an old stone stairway. I must confess that my heart was in my mouth. This stairway should lead us up to the east wing, I'd say. By the way, Watson, you make a most convincing plumber. Oh, really? Oh, I thought I was going to charge, you know. Quiet, Watson. The light under that door. The door's slightly ajar. Come here, Watson. We can see through the crack. The man seated in front of the dressing table. Staring into the mirror. Candlelight's flickering, but I'll give you odds that's black angle. It's like this, Holmes. I don't like it. He meant. Holmes. He's got a revolver. He's raising it. Angus McKinnon, put down that revolver. Who the devil are you? My name is Sherlock Holmes. I have told Bruce to throw you out. This time I'll do it myself, you prying. Mr. McKinnon, I know what you were thinking when you raised that revolver to your temple just now. And believe me, you're wrong. You can't possibly know. I think I do. You are convinced that you have been killing these sheepdogs. 
You have been so preoccupied with the legends of your great ancestor, Wolfhound McKinnon, that you think that your brain has snapped and that you've turned into a vampire. You're right, Mr. Holmes. But how you found out is beyond me. You know about the dogs? The sheep dogs with their throats torn out? Yes, we know about them. That we found one as we were driving out about a mile from here. I know. They brought me the news not more than two hours ago. It won't happen again. You're convinced that you are responsible for these killings? What else can I think? All the evidence. The blood stains on my cloak. And I know those stains are not caused by human blood. You remember nothing? Nothing. But when I think of the heritage of the McKinnons, how can I doubt? Then that's the reason your son was recalled from London yesterday. I tell you. You suddenly had proof of what you thought to be your own morbid tendencies. And so you sent a message to your only son, warning him that he must not allow the woman he loved to marry into a family stained with madness. Holmes, you seem to understand my problem. But I will not discuss it with you. Go away, both of you. But McKinnon cannot go to his maker before strangers. Mr. McKinnon, give me your help in a few hours, Grace, and I'm convinced I can prove to you that you're the victim of a devilish plot. A plot? I don't understand. Oh, come now, Mr. McKinnon. In this year of grace, it's a little hard to believe in vampires. But how can you disprove the evidence I've seen with my own eyes? The human teeth marks. It wouldn't be hard to conceive of an instrument that could simulate those marks, Mr. McKinnon. But who could think of such a fiendish plan? And what would be the motive? I have a suspicion. But what's more important at the immediate moment is to find the evidence. An instrument such as I've suggested would be damning proof. Therefore, it would be hidden in the most obscure hiding place in the castle. Now, what would be the most secret place? The cellars? Aye, we have extensive cellars. We'll search them. But another possibility occurs to me. In castles as old as this, there's often a secret room. Or, as they were sometimes called, a priest's hole. You're quite right, Mr. Holmes. We have such a hiding place here, though I haven't been in it for years. Another stairway leads down between the walls. From an entrance behind that big cabinet. Splendid, Mr. McKinnon. You have a lantern? There, on the dressing table. I'll light it, Holmes. Thank you, Watson. I have a strong suspicion that the solution of the postponed wedding ceremony, as well as that of the mangled dogs, lies at the foot of that secret stairway. Stuck a little place. Festooned with cobwebs. Oh, dear, dear. Just walked into another one. Nobody's been down here recently, Holmes. I'd swear to that. Give me the lantern, Watson, will you? Uh, there you are, fellow. Thanks. Uh-huh. Look here in the dust on the floor. Footprints. Footprints leading to that old chest in the, in the corner over there. Yes. Doesn't seem to be locked. Look, Mr. McKinnon. See this devil's instrument? What is it? That looks like a metal trap. It is, with jaws of steel and a powerful spring. Oh, good heavens! And you can see the recent bloodstains on it. This fiendish instrument gives us the answer to those poor dead dogs. You mean that this was used to tear out their throats? Undoubtedly. And look, more devil's work. Great Scott, a human jawbone with the teeth intact. This must have been used to leave the prints of human teeth after the animals were dead. And to try and make me think that I was mad. The devils! Oh, sorry. Somebody's talking. 
Somebody shot the lantern out of my hand. You're too inquisitive, Sherlock Holmes. Humphrey. Yes, Angus, your cousin, Humphrey. We've found out, Humphrey. I know what you and your meddling friends have found out, Angus. Thoughtful of you to put yourself in my power. A priest dungeon will make a perfect cutting for the three of you. I'm going to lock and bolt this door at the head of the stairs. It's your only escape. I'm afraid death by suffocation and starvation will be very pleasant, my friend. I'm afraid I'm coming back up those stairs. And when I get my hands on you... Your step, Angus, and I fire... Your devil, Humphrey! I warned you! Stop! where are you? I'm here, by the prison. How is he? I'm all right, Holmes. I think the shot just grazed me. I'll strike a match. Yes. Just a flesh wound as far as I can see. Good. McKinnon, is there another exit from this room? There is, Mr. Holmes. Under that chest, the stone slides out. Gracious me, Mr. Humphrey said... Humphrey knows nothing about it. Some secrets of the McKinnon family are only interested to those bearing the family name. Thank heaven for that. Now I'd suggest we get out of here as soon as possible. The air in here is getting stale already. Shaky, but I'm all right, Mr. Holmes. Well, in places, are we? We've been following this little passage up and down, round and round. Right now, we're behind the wall of the library. The entrance is ahead of us, concealed by a tapestry. There's a faint crack of light. We're behind the tapestry. Someone's in the library. Boy, I don't know how to say this. It's Humphreys. And my son, David. I was worried about those men from London. Sherlock Holmes should learn the shame of the beginning. I'm afraid I've got shocking news for you. Your father has confessed that he has been killing the sheepdog. Father, he knows that he's mad. He, he left the castle just now with a pistol. He plans to kill himself. Kill himself? We must stop him. Oh, no, 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 my boy. Let him go. It's the best way. Poor father. What can I do? There's only one honorable solution, David. Your branch of the family is corrupt, decayed. If your father dies and you disappear, the estate reverts to me. And we can save the McKinnon name with fresh blood. But, Uncle... You can go to the colonies and start life over with a new name. It's the only way. We've heard enough. Come on. Confess, you lying devil father. He said the drop that revolver, Humphrey. Drop it or I'll shoot. We overheard your conversation, Mr. Humphreys. Most enlightening. And we found this where you headed, you filthy beast. A human jawbone. You'd marked the dogs with it and tried to make me think that I'd done it the son. Then what he told me in London was nothing but a pack of lies. Of course. Mr. McKinnon, I suggest you send for the police. The police? What crime can they hold me for? A few sheep dogs killed and they can't prove I was responsible. The... There's a mob of people outside the window. Mr. McKinnon, Excuse me. What is it, Bruce? It's a crowd of the villagers. They're in an ugly mood. They say you're responsible for the sheepdogs being killed on the moors. They're threatening to burn the castle. I'm afraid they're getting out of hand. Go back and tell them that in a few minutes I'll come out and explain the killing. Aye, sir, aye. But in a way too long. I'll go and talk to them, Father. They know me. Mr. Humphreys, possibly the law can do little to you, but the violence of mob 
room may prove strikingly effective. I, I'll take this blackguard Humphreys out there. They'll know what to do with him. No, 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 you can't do that. You've got to keep me away from there. Tell me to beat him. Sign a written confession, Mr. Humphreys, and we'll protect you. I'll sign anything. Just keep me away from that mob. You suggested that my boy should go to the colonies. Put it in writing that you'll do just that just now. Give me a pen. Here you are. And now, Watson, I think we we'll still have time to catch the night express for London. I hope we'll have no difficulty in obtaining three tickets on such short notice. Three tickets? Of course. I'm certain young David McKinnon will be accompanying us. I fancy we may be attending a wedding within a very few days. And did you, Dr. Watson? Did I... did I what? Charming affair. <laughs> I'm sure it was. And now, Dr. Watson, what about next week? Well, now, let me see. What shall I tell you? Next week, I think I'll tell you a story called The Adventure of the Hungry Cat, in which Sherlock Holmes saves an innocent man from the gallows and brings to justice a particularly vicious...
Thank you for listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's shows. Visit our website at www.strangerspilgrims.com.